you would open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Which again is not a continuation of our series in 1 Peter. But I will read verses 1 through 14 for us. John's Gospel, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, not have told, would I not have told you that I would go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Father, I ask that in the rest of the moments that we have together as a church this morning, that we would prefer one another and that we would prioritize unity in the body of Christ and think carefully how our actions affect others because you have worked and moved heaven and earth to unite us together. Help us portray that unity and love and consideration of one another. We thank you for all these reasons that you have given us to rejoice. Would you pray with me right now where you are in your own heart that the Lord would open to you more and more of the reasons he has given you to rejoice. would you also pray that he would work faith in believing in your heart even now to obey his word. Father, as we examine this truth about the Lord answering us and you hearing us, I pray that we would be steady 
in our hearts, that we would not jump off one end or the other, but believe you. Help us rejoice in the fact that you hear us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said at the beginning, Celebration Sunday is a reminder to rejoice. We're commanded to rejoice. It's not optional as a Christian. As I said, it's arguably one of the most repeated commands in the Bible. I've told you that before. I wanted to take time to number all the times that we're commanded as the people of God to be glad, to be happy, to delight ourselves in the Lord, but there were just too many, dozens and dozens, perhaps even over a hundred times in the Bible we're commanded to rejoice. It's said different ways, be glad, delight in the Lord, and many are just stated as fact, I rejoice in the Lord. So if you just add all those up, it becomes a list too long. To be happy in God is the most sacred duty of the believer. I won't prove that to you this morning. We're only looking at one foundation of joy in your life. Here are a few honest questions in connection with this command. Why are we commanded to do this? So much could be said here. But you need to understand that the Lord creating a people who rejoice in Him together is in many ways the point of creation. Say that again. The Lord creating a people who rejoice in Him is in many ways the point of creation. Seeing all who God is in the person of Jesus Christ and then rejoicing in all that God is forever is the way that God most desires to be glorified. We know intuitively, I hope, that God is about His glory and that creation exists for His glory. But how is He going to be glorified? What way has He chosen to do that? In creating a people who see all that He is in the person of Jesus is how He has decided He will be glorified most. Your joy, your happiness, is therefore holy ground. Pursuit of holiness is, in essence, finding your joy in the Lord as both source and goal. So the second question in connection with this is, why is it so hard? This is so important, so central to the meaning of the universe and why we exist in the first place. Why is it so hard? Again, so much could be said here, but part of the reason it is often so hard for us to rejoice consistently and zealously in the Lord is because we forget. Forget what? We forget His promises. We forget what He has done. We forget the privilege of sonship. We forget the honor that has been bestowed on us. We forget the glory of His blessings that He has secured for us. We forget the abundant fullness of His goodness the abundant fullness of His wisdom, the abundant fullness of His power, and so many more things. And it is a strange thing that those who are redeemed by the power of God and His goodness would be so apt to forget, to languish in our memory of what God has done for us. In many ways, the reason we come together as a church, as often as we do, is to remind each other of what God has done. 
This is what it means. This is what it takes to stir one another up to love and to good works. To remind each other of what God is up to and what He has done and how He has blessed us and all of these other things. Pointing to, of course, what He has promised to do. In short, if you'll permit me to put it this way, a man or woman who never sins is a man or woman who never forgets just how good God is. Your sanctification depends on remembering. So what does this all have to do with this text today? You may be looking at John 14, particularly verses 12 through 14, and may be asking, what does this have to do with this? And my plan, having less time than we do as usual because of the additional elements for the service today, is to remind you of one, just one, of the great privileges that you have as a believer. If you trust in Christ, if you are one of His, if you are an adopted son or daughter of the King, He hears you. I want to dig in and around that and remind you of that and hold it up for you to see as a ground of rejoicing. Your joy needs a ground. It needs a foundation. It needs pillars and walls and a roof. And many of you walk around perhaps with very little to no joy because you think that it can be or should be derived from you. And it simply can't. No, it needs, it needs a ground, a foundation outside of you, something that is not you, not from you. And only the Lord and what He has done can be a sure foundation of your joy. That's the point. And I would say, with a very high degree of certainty, that this passage, what this passage teaches us, and the assurance that it gives that the Lord, in fact, hears us, is one of the most important and neglected foundations of joy in the church abroad today. We don't really get how big of a deal it is that He hears us. I think our prayer life is often proof of that. The first thing I want to say to you is that this passage from the outset seems a little out of place. And one of the ways I think that you can know that we still have a long ways to go in our growth and understanding what the Bible is really about is that if we really knew what the Bible is about and what it was saying, then no passage ever would feel out of place. It wouldn't feel like it was ever necessarily roughly changing the subject. It would all make sense and it would all flow. It means when we feel that or when we see that, it means that the text really hasn't gotten into us or we haven't gotten our minds inside the text fully enough. And this text, John 14, especially verses 12 through 14, if you were just reading it for the first time, or even now today with a fresh set of eyes, this seems out of place. There are other places where the Bible speaks about prayer. I plan to read through all these other ones, where it's just a jarring shift in subject. It seems like the the biblical authors are are not being uh, well kept in their flow of thought, and they just downshift into saying something about prayer when they're talking about something else. A few examples, again, we won't read them, are from Romans 8, 1 Timothy 2, and in John chapter 5, 11 through 15. There are more, but those are the most stark. And I think what the seeming change of subject feeling that we have when we come to this, I mean, he's, he's talking about knowing the way to God and Him being the way, the truth, and the life, and then he just says all this stuff about prayer. Is he, is he just running out of time and just throwing things at the wall that, for the disciples to remember because he's about to be taken away? I don't think so. 
I think that feeling, though, that we get and that I think can be seen just on the surface shows a disconnect between our theology of prayer and all the rest of theology. Prayer, in many ways, puts wheels on your convictions about God. Your doctrinal statement, if you have one or if you agree with one, can tell me a lot about you, but explain to me your prayer life and what you pray like and what you pray for, and that will tell me more valuable information about what you really believe about God than anything else. So it's not out of place. The point of the passage is this, I believe. The reason it occurs here and is said in this way is this. Being given the privilege of having access to the name of Jesus, whereby we can pray, whereby the Father hears us, is one of the highest goals of the Messiah. One of the things that He sets out to accomplish for us. God is making you and I, through faith, into adopted sons. And He wills to bring all of that blessing to us. All that accords with that glorious sonship. And one of the characteristics of the Messiah, you hear this in His prayers, especially when He goes to raise Lazarus from the dead. He says, Father, I thank You that You have heard me. I know that You always hear me, but I said this for the sake of those who are around and listening. God hears Jesus, and now what is happening is through faith in Jesus, God hears us. So we're being, we've been given access to the name. And what do I mean by that? This, this is the central point, I believe, of this text. It's not so much a passage about prayer exclusively. I want you to see that. It's more about the way that God works and what He is really up to in the world. The great encouragement of this passage is that He has done all this, not only to make it possible for Him to hear you, but in order to commit Himself to hear you. He hasn't just given you access so that your prayers and requests are heard in some general sense, but He is now obligating Himself to hear you through faith in Jesus. A few exegetical points to make. This is not a full-blown sermon, again, because of the constraints of time, but a few things I do want to point out to you. He is not just talking about the prayers of the apostles. Look at it closely. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me. He's not saying whoever in your group, whoever in this room sitting with me now. He's saying whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. He's also not just talking about the inward benefits of salvation, like joy and peace and and all those things that, that we could pray for without a whole lot of faith or an exertion of the will. No, no necessarily God-sized prayer in all these intangible things. He says, greater works than these will He do. Greater here, I think, means greater in scope. Jesus didn't travel more than 100 miles from His birthplace in His whole life. So you have an area smaller than, than the ancient kingdom of Israel, and that's, that's the limitations of Jesus' ministry. And then through His apostles, the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. So greater works than what Jesus did, the apostles did. 
Further, this is another note from the text. These works are not automatic. They're a result of praying in the Spirit. I want you to see this connection. So he begins in verse 12 talking about these works that the person who believes in him will do. And I think the question that could be begged is, how in the world are we going to do greater works than you, Jesus? Whatever you ask in my name, that is what I will do. So dependence on prayer and praying for Jesus to accomplish these things is in fact the way that we will accomplish the greater things than even Jesus has done. So there's some connection between the coming of the Spirit, which he talks about in verse 15 through 17, which we'll get into a bit, and he's also connecting it with Jesus going to the Father. Look at this. So we know that the, the Helper comes because Jesus goes to the Father. Unless He goes, the Helper won't come. So greater works than these will He do because I am going to the Father. So this new situation that the departure of Jesus accomplishes, His, his sitting at the right hand of God as our mediator, praying for us even, is in some ways necessary or essential to our being able to accomplish everything that He's given us to do. This connection, I believe, hinges on what in the world it means to pray in Jesus' name. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. Many explanations of what this means, I think, fall flat, or they say true things, but they don't say the most important things. And it does not simply mean saying in Jesus' name at the end of your prayers, or in your name. It's not like putting the finishing touches on a spell that you're, that you're casting. And the last thing you've got to say to make it work and for God to answer your prayers is to say in Jesus' name. That's not what it is. There's something much, much deeper going on here. I mean, just, just unless, unless you're just allowing this to wash over and you're submitting to this, that we, a lot of questions get raised in our minds. It surely doesn't mean everything. Surely it doesn't mean whatever we ask. But just letting the significance of the passage hit your heart and asking the right questions like, okay, then what does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? That's the question. Connect it deeper to what's going on in the Bible. Go all the way back to Moses. And I know I talk a lot about this scene, but there's so much to be garnered from what happens in this situation with Moses interceding for the people of Israel. Uh, it's, it's difficult to leave it behind for any significant amount of time. So the scene is essentially this. Moses goes up to the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights, He stays up there, receives the law, and the people get antsy while he's gone, and they ask Aaron to build an idol for them, and he does, and they start worshiping this golden calf because this guy Moses, we don't know what's become of him. And God has finished relaying the law to Moses, and he tells him to go down and check things out, and then God says, all right, because they've done this, I'm going to destroy every single one of them. Stand over there, Moses, while I kill them all, and restart the nation of Israel with you. So God's told him what his plan is. He's told him what to do. And Moses intercedes and says, no, don't do that. And here's what he says. This is from Exodus 32, verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And God's answer is, okay. And he relents and forgives. That generation finally dies in the wilderness, so they are punished in some sense for their sin, but God relents of the disaster that he intended to do. 
Joshua, Moses' protege and successor, prays in much the same way with an added point of clarity after the defeat at Ai. He says this, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut us off, cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So Joshua is praying for God to act in a certain way on the basis of God's fame or or the, the, the majesty of his name, his reputation, if you will. And God relents from disaster and delivers and gives them a path for restoration in both cases because his reputation is at stake. And the prophets, especially David, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, developed a theme. Here's one example from Ezekiel chapter 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And this is in the context where he's about to give the promise of the new covenant. Not for your sake that I'm acting. It's not for your sake. I mean, you've profaned my name, so I'm going to act and do things that restore my fame and my reputation because you've profaned it. And he gives them the promise of giving them a new heart. So what does this all have to do with prayer and our text today? The connection is this, that the name that the Lord now works to exalt above all other names is none other than the name of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11. through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The dynamic has changed. It is no longer just God in general or even Yahweh or whatever name in the Old Testament that you would really like to apply to God. It is no longer just that. It is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He will be preeminent. This is God's purpose. Jesus Christ is the one who perfectly is and who perfectly represents who God is. So now the name of Jesus is the name that will be exalted. Becoming a Christian then comes with this massive privilege of prayer because now that you know the name that God is about exalting, He's he's not going to share His glory with anyone else, and so He's at work to exalt this name of Jesus, and He's given you access, He's granted to you the privilege of being heard by Him, and the invitation is pray for things that make that the case. Our prayers then are not modified by adding in the name of Jesus, but rather the motive from the start should be the fame of the name of Jesus. That now, that theology of God protecting the reputation of His name, exalting the glory of His name, and now specifically in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that equips us to answer this question. Does it really mean whatever we ask? The difficult question, and the the intensity of these statements could be compounded if we just go to some of the other Gospels and read some of those other texts about prayer. It's just, I mean, it's almost not qualified at all. Whatever you ask. But the point is, of course, the emphasis is in my name. 
and understanding in this very rich sense that we've been talking about, what does that mean? How can we, Christian, pray truthfully in the name of Jesus? Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Do you see? That's exactly what he's doing. Praying for the things that help or contribute to what God is doing in exalting Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Are your prayers informed by that goal from the start of it? Or do we just try to slap it on at the end to try and force God to do what we want Him to do? The duty of the believer then is to pray in line with or for the things that exalt Jesus. Why? Because that is what God is doing. We know that this is what His will is. This is the reason the universe is continuing as it is, because God is at work to subject all of Jesus' enemies under His feet and to make them into a footstool. All of it is for His glory. From His patience to His judgments to His saving of people, all of it is for the glory of Christ. So your life should be too. And that then should produce prayers that are for the glory of Christ. So the point is not to give you a license to pray for whatever you want. But it's an invitation. Understand this. It is an invitation to want the things that exalt Christ. And to pray fervently for God to do those things. One of the reasons, you need to understand this, one of the reasons there is so much unanswered prayer in the life of the believer is not that you are necessarily asking for the wrong things, but you are asking wrongly. This is exactly what James, the younger half-brother of Jesus, says in chapter 4, verses 1-3. through What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The problem isn't so much what you're asking for. Healing, health, whatever. That you can ask for those things. Things that are very, very good. Spend it on your passions. And it has nothing to do. In your mind, you may say it at the end of your prayer. You may work it out in some way in your mind. But from the heart, your motive in praying for that thing has nothing to do with the glory of Jesus at all. And so it is better, understand that it is God's mercy towards you to not answer that. To not give you the thing that you're chasing if it is not rooted in a desire for Christ to be glorified. It is better for you to be trained to want Christ to be magnified in your life and then out of that desire, pray for those things, whatever it is, whatever you ask that is motivated out of that desire to glorify Christ in your life, that He will do. So let's, before we qualify that a bit, let's talk about these new desires. It's amazing this, and almost any place in the Bible where you see it teaching about the theology of prayer, you find the theology of the Spirit being unfolded. And it's no accident that we get verses 15 through 17 right here. If you love me, this is, he's not changing the subject. Understand that. Even though there's, if you're looking at the ESV, there's a, there's a heading. That's not inspired, okay? And even the verse divisions are not inspired. 
If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Verse 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. So how do we pray in a way that glorifies Christ? How do we alter our affections and our motivations from the core, from the very start? What does it even mean for me to be alive? What does it mean for me to go after a thing or to pursue a certain course of life? It has to be, for the Christian, as you mature, rooted in a desire to see Christ glorified. How do we get there? By the Spirit. You cannot muster that mindset in yourself. And you cannot see all the ways that your motives and your thoughts and the reasons you ask for things and want things, how many ways that just needs to be completely transformed. And one of the reasons many of us might be hindered in the progress of sanctification is that many of those things that we want and desire so much and we think are so essential to ourselves aren't really. We haven't laid them on the altar, as it were, for God to say, all right, Let's dice that up and get rid of half of that. Or let's get rid of all of that and replace it with something else. I said last week in our our Sunday school class that we must maintain a causal connection between our prayers and what God does. There has to be a real connection or else you're essentially saying the same thing as God doesn't answer prayer. Because if we just pray, it's like a, uh, this example has been used before. If you're walking around downtown Coeur d'Alene, you have to cross certain streets, and unless your, your conscience is clear to just jaywalk all over the place, you've got to push that button. And the first thing it says after you push that button to cross is wait, right? And I think many of our practical theology of prayer is exactly like that button. We just push the button, we pray whatever we want, and we feel from the Lord like it's an iron ceiling, and the first answer is just wait. Right? And we're just waiting there, and we don't know. We don't know what's going on in the software behind the scenes. We just push that button, and we're like, well, maybe it speeds it up, maybe it doesn't. So maybe our prayers have something to do with God answering, maybe it doesn't. But we know we're supposed to, so we're just going to keep praying. Just keep pushing that button. Is that how it is? We can't have a theology of prayer that doesn't come to the conclusion that God hears and answers that there's some connection, some real causal connection between our prayers and what God does. Uh, But understand this, and here's how the causal connection works. In the same way that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit, do not think that you are able to desire that the name of Jesus be glorified and praised in the answering of your prayers except by the Holy Spirit. To pray in the name of Jesus in this real deep, rich sense that we're talking about. Desiring that His name be magnified in the answering of your prayers. Whether that be for your health or your school or your work or your whatever. If the root desire is that Christ would be magnified, that desire is from the Lord Himself. That's how the chain is connected. God is at work in you to desire these very things. And to come to Him humbly but boldly asking for Him to do that which you know He wants to do. 
This is how Paul speaks about it in a general sense in Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. One of the most clear examples of this, specifically relating to prayer, of how this causal chain is connected between what we pray and what God does is seen in Isaiah 62. This is what God says to Jerusalem. This is amazing. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance. This is God talking. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give Him no rest. Meaning, don't let me go to sleep. Bother me enough that you won't let me have any rest, O watchman. Until He establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So much going on there. I wish we could just spend a long, long time there. But God is at work to appoint these watchmen who will pray in order for God to fulfill what He's already said He's going to do. That's how it's connected. He stirs in the hearts of these watchmen, whoever they are, to pray that God would be faithful to His promises. And on that basis, that's, that's how He wants to be faithful to His promises. Do you understand? He wants to be faithful to His promises as an answer to the prayers of His people. He's promised to send the Christ, but when Christ comes, it will be in response to the prayers of His saints. This is how Spurgeon says it, speaking about Jeremiah. Jeremiah interceding for the people. He intercedes for them, but we have to not seek far before we discover the reason why he did it. God, in infinite mercy, gave the weeping prophet to his sinful people in order that they might not be left as sheep without a shepherd and be quite given over to utter destruction. And wherever you meet with a man who intercedes with God for his fellow man and makes this the main business of his life, you see in him one of the most precious gifts of God's grace to the age in which he lives. It is God that writes intercession upon the hearts of men. So do you see why I've been talking about and praying for and so eager for our prayer meeting as a church to become a bigger deal to all of us. Because it's a leading indicator of God about to do something. Not sure exactly what it will be, but when the church together grows in zeal for praying to the Lord, that means that God is already at work to stir in us those desires. So in light of all this, in light of this theology of praying in the name of Jesus, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, here are a few bad ways to pray. Number one, not praying for the glory of Christ. Right? That should be obvious. So when I say, when I pray, you, if you pay attention, this, you, you hear me say something like this at the end of all, all prayers. Uh, I pray these things for, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Or something like that. But when I say that, I'm not just tagging that on at the end as a formality. I am making a claim. I'm making an audacious claim, as it were, that if these prayers are answered, I believe that Christ will be glorified. 
And if you can't say that in your mind, not that you have to say that out loud, if you can't believe that in a, good, in a clear conscience, then you shouldn't be praying for whatever it is you're praying for. I believe, Father, that if you answer this, Christ will be magnified. His glory will extend. So, so understand this. What makes your prayers different from the prayers of, of, of a Muslim, from a Jehovah's Witness, from a Mormon? qualitatively, what we're praying for is not just the glory of God generally, but rather the name of Jesus Christ being praised. That's the point. We set ourselves apart in our prayers by seeking the glory of Christ. Not just good things to happen. The second bad way to pray is merely to align yourself with God's will. Unless that's what you're praying for. Lord, give me the desires that would bring Christ to be glorified. But there's a way to pray that's, that's just, well, I don't know what God has willed, so I'll just pray and hope that He's at work while I'm praying to just make me want the right things. The third way, and the way this comes across, is essentially saying something like this, do whatever you will do. I I think that's the attitude some of us can get when we pray. Well, I don't know what God has planned, so Lord, just do whatever you've planned to do. It's just lazy. And you see, the privilege of sonship, we'll talk about this in a little bit, the privilege of sonship is that you have now been given desires as part of the kingdom of God to want the things that God wants and to pray earnestly for God to do the things that He has already said that He will do and to eagerly petition the Lord to be faithful to His promises. Fourth way, a bad way to pray, is, is ways that aren't for your good. Do you understand that the majority of the Psalms are asking for God to do something on behalf of the prayer? Like the person who's praying? Lord, deliver me. Lord, save me. Lord, please vindicate me. Bring me out of this mire. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Like all of it in the... In, Almost the majority, I would say probably 80% of every prayer in the Psalms is for the person that is praying. So don't be bashful or shy about asking the Lord to do great things for you. But it must still yet be connected to the glory of Christ in some way. Pray for your good because God is glorified in the vindication and salvation of His people. The last day, that is the basis on which Christ will be glorified. It was better The way that God blesses His people will prove once for all that those who aligned themselves with Jesus were in the right. Also, you should not pray with doubting. This is from James. Again, if if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And I know that if you've been praying for something for so long, so fervently, and you've tried your best to interface that desire with the glory of Christ, and it has just not worked out, that the Burden, the doubt that can develop in your heart is in many ways so profound. I'll quote Spurgeon for you again. Tired believer, here is a lesson for you. 
Have you come to a very difficult place? Are you in very sore trouble? Such trouble as you have never known before? Then wait upon the Lord. And if at first He does not answer you, and if it seems that the very gates of heaven are shut against you, still continue to wait upon the Lord. Where else can you go if you turn away from Him? You are shut up to continue to wait on the Lord. You are shut up to this one course. So do not seek any other way out of your difficulty. Take that bitter grief and let it all in His ears. To whom or whither should you go if you should turn from Him? Therefore cling to Him. And though He slay you, still trust in Him. For you have nobody else to whom you can trust. Lastly, we should see a connection to the glory of God, the name of Jesus, and boldness that we can have in prayer. Once you understand that glorifying Jesus is what God is up to in the world, and the why the universe exists in the first place, to make Christ preeminent, once you realize that His glory in His people is the main way that He wants to do this, it becomes much more clear why we should pray and why we should pray with so much more boldness. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 3. He says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. If you believe that this is what God is doing, this is what he has committed himself to do from beginning to end, then you have so many more reasons to be bold, to be brave, and to be God-sized in your prayers. Praying with confidence then depends on knowing that this is how the Lord works. And knowledge of what will actually glorify Him. So there are a few elements. Number one, you can know that this is what the will of the Lord is. Number two, you can trust, just as we've seen in John 14, that the Spirit is at work to cause in your heart the desire for these very things. And number three, understand that this this dynamic, this this, uh, pattern of desiring what will glorify Jesus in your life and then praying for those things, that is preparation for glory. In the hereafter, it will be a society built around the praise of older brother Jesus. And the plan is not for you to just sit there as a consumer and receive all of it, but to participate and bring to the table all that you have and all that you will be made to be for the sake of His praise. And so your attitude and your posture of praying even now for the things that glorify Christ is training ground for what your existence will be in the hereafter if you trust in Him. So the believer ought to pray with confidence and boldness. The answer will not always be what you want it to be. And that seems like an odd qualification when it says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do for you, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. But a perfect example to look at to see how this might work is Paul's thorn. Paul's desire in praying for it to be taken away was one, just to get rid of the pain. 
But two, because I, I mean, we can read between the lines, he probably believed that, Lord, if you take this pain away, if you take this handicap away, I'll be more effective for ministry. More people will hear the gospel. More people will come to know you. Wouldn't that be great, Lord? And God's answer is, of course, my grace is sufficient for you. And I, I think theologically we can say this. God was glorified more in Christ through Paul's weakness. And that's why he says in the very next verses, I will boast all the more in my weakness. So instead of answering exactly what he was praying for, God brought him in further and showed him what would, in fact, glorify Christ more. And so, in in essence, Paul's prayer changed because he then knew what would glorify Christ more. Then, okay, Lord, if that's what will glorify you more, then give me sustaining grace to endure with this while you give this thorn to me. And God answered that one. He endured, did not lose heart, but ministered out of his weakness for the sake of his people. God always answers prayers that are, in fact, geared towards the glory of Christ and will, in fact, result in the glory of Christ. So trust, dear Christian, if you truly love Jesus, that an unanswered prayer, if, even if prayed in faith, if it is unanswered, is God essentially saying, there's a better way. There's a better way for Christ to be glorified in your life than me answering that right now. And if you love Him, if you want Christ to be glorified, you can rest in that. In a few moments after we hear the testimony of our new candidates for membership, we will take the Lord's Supper. So I want to connect this idea of prayer to the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. The context, of course, for John 14 is that Jesus, I do believe, is sensing that he's just running out of time and he is telling them as much as he can and even says, there's so much I want to say to you, but I can't because you won't be able to bear it. And he's saying all this right before he is betrayed, arrested, denied, taken to multiple trials on false charges, beaten, scourged, mocked, beard plucked out, abandoned, crushed in our place for our sins through crucifixion on a Roman cross. The right that you have to pray, brother and sister, is secured for you at the cost of God's only Son. The reason we have access to the name, the reason the name of Jesus is the name that God is about the business of glorifying, the reason your prayers can amount to anything is because He died for you. The ability you have to approach God with boldness and the ability to think in terms of the glory of Christ and to seek that in your life and to pray for the things that will accomplish that is all something that you have received as a gift purchased by His death. And here's another reason to pray in Jesus' name in connection with all of this. His broken body and shed blood. This is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10-12. through 12. For whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's a problem for you and me. Because you're not righteous, and I'm not righteous. 
Only on the basis of what we celebrate in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus do you have any right to be heard. Because God's ear is towards the righteous. Do you see how this connected to praying in His name? Lord, I don't have any right to come and appeal to you to help me at all. It is only because I am in Christ and His righteousness is now made mine through faith that I can be heard at all in the heavenly court. How would your prayers be acceptable incense burning a pleasing aroma to Him at all in Christ? The righteousness of Christ being applied to you through faith is the only real way that we can approach Him. So let's pray and continue celebrating together. Father, thank You for this grand privilege of being mysteriously folded into Your plan unfolding. The plan that has been at work from the beginning, before time existed, we are now, by the Spirit, caught up and part of these gears that turn that will eventually produce the glory of Christ, part of this tapestry that you have been weaving together to exalt Him above every name. Pray that you would continue to sanctify our fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen.